This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. I'm Kennedy. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Harris Faulkner. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, September 28, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The second presidential debate is in the books as we get ever closer to the first Republican primary. Who made the biggest impression and did anyone change their trajectory as former President Trump dominates the polls? You have to be thinking, how am I going to start separating myself from the rest of this field to make this closer to a two-person race? Uh, Part of that has to be the appeal that, listen, I am suited to beat Joe Biden. I'm Chris Foster. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says a partial government shutdown could lead to flight delays and compromise flight safety. A shutdown like this would stop us in our tracks, and even a shutdown lasting a few days or weeks would set us back by many months in terms of the, the, the hiring and the training. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Seven candidates were on the stage, all trying to make their mark before the next debate, when the thresholds increased to make the stage, even as poll after poll shows former President Trump still dominating. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley went after tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy for joining TikTok, a company whose parent company is based in China. I have a radical idea for the Republican Party. We need to win elections. And part of how we win elections is reaching the next generation of young Americans. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps that we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say. Haley and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott pointed out Ramaswamy partnered with a Chinese-based investment firm a few years ago. And Haley said because of that, they can't trust him. Haley and Scott, though, got into it over who would be a better president, which turned into a fight over curtains at the governor's mansion. And then Florida Governor Ron DeSantis successfully cut them both off. Twelve years, where have you I voted no one I'm the only one up here who's gotten in the big fights and has delivered big victories for the people of Florida. And that's what it's all about. And while they all fought amongst themselves, they may have felt a bit more free to go after the former president. Haley said Trump had failed to go after China properly. DeSantis said the former president added trillions of dollars to our debt and said he needs to explain why he said DeSantis's six-week abortion ban for Florida was terrible. The former president's vice president, Mike Pence, went after Trump when asked if Pence would eliminate Obamacare as president. You know, my former running mate, Donald Trump, actually has a plan to start to consolidate more power in Washington, D.C., consolidate more power in the executive branch. If I'm president of the United States, it's my intention to make the federal government smaller. Heading into the evening, Nikki Haley was rising in several polls, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was declining. Did any of those trends reverse? Who, if anyone, was the winner? I don't think anyone on that stage stood out, uh, and that's not good news for any of them because <laughs> Donald Trump is leading in every national and early state poll by at least 20, 25 points. Josh Crosshour is Fox News Radio's political analyst, and he's joined later in the interview by Fox News Radio's congressional correspondent, Jared Halpern. I was surprised, Jess, that only two of the seven 
presidential candidates on that stage even mentioned Donald Trump's name. Chris Christie was the one who did it the most aggressively and I think the most effectively. Ron DeSantis a little bit on spending and on abortion. But this was like a, a, a race and a debate where many of the top candidates didn't even want to acknowledge the elephant in the room, which is that you have a, a candidate, Donald Trump, who's, who's dominating the primary and uh, no one wanted to draw any contrasts except for Christie and, and to a lesser extent DeSantis. Uh, so by, the, by definition I think Trump won the debate. He didn't really get hit all that hard, except from Christie. I I also think that the big question out of this debate when it comes to Trump's challengers is, was Nikki Haley's aggressiveness? She went after almost everyone. Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis... Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, she, she, she was the standout in the first debate. Yeah. Whether going so aggressively on offense, trying to attack uh, all of her leading rivals, whether that's going to play well with the public is an unknown. But I, I, I kind of wonder if she was a little too harsh, a little too aggressive and may but wasn't, uh, but end she up was, losing a little bit of support. But Josh, she was set up, right? I mean, that was the whole thing with, with Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. It was, hey, okay, Dana Frino, the wonderful Dana Frino, asked Tim Scott, you know, why are you better suited for this CEO position of America. Well, but she also voluntarily brought up the point about fracking to, to DeSantis. He was almost right. surprised by the attack, I think. <laughs> he he wasn't expecting it. And in fact, the, the classic one-on-one again with Haley and Ramaswamy where they were arguing over uh, TikTok and, and whether it should be banned in the United States. And that was one that she just jumped right in and, and, and went after Ramaswamy. So, look, in the first debate, her exchange over foreign policy with Ramaswamy was the highlight of the debate. I don't know if any of these individual exchanges really did her a whole lot of good and frankly we were arguing about curtains you know we were talking about curtains <laughs> uh, with Tim Scott I didn't even it was the debate it was an argument about nothing uh, it was a, the Seinfeld exchange of the debate and I don't know if that helped Haley and it just made her look a little too negative I think in contrast to her otherwise favorable image okay Jared I wonder I wonder if DeSantis's folks are saying okay big applause after you know he mentioned his military service that he would be the only president to have military service since 1988 Mm -hmm. and then after what josh and i were just talking about that whole exchange about who would be a better ceo of america and DeSantis just glides in and basically says didn't i do an awesome job winning florida and it sort of ended haley and scott's back and forth are his folks thinking that's how you do it slow steady moment after moment maybe not huge blockbuster moments but building block moments I think what they're trying to accomplish is to explain why Ron DeSantis is a good matchup against Joe Biden, right? And, you know, this was sort of the crux of the last question, uh, or I guess it was ultimately the second to last question that Dana Perino asked about, you know, which one of you is going to drop out or which one of you should be voted off the island, right? Because at some point, this has to consolidate, right? So if you're Ron DeSantis and you're still kind of in that number two position, you have to be thinking, how am I going to start separating myself from the rest of this field to make this closer to a two-person race. Uh, Part of that has to be the appeal that, listen, I am suited to beat uh, Joe Biden, right? In Florida, we did have a a red wave, right? So I think that's what his his folks are trying to do, is remind voters, if you're Ron DeSantis, that your electoral history has outpaced a lot of other Republicans' electoral history over the last three, four election cycles. Now, we know heading into this debate, the the top line issue for voters, according to Fox News polls and others, has been the economy, but more specifically the inflation. Either of you, did you hear anything definitive 
about how to address that. I, he I heard a lot about unleashing American energy, focusing on you know gas prices with drilling and gas and oil. Did you guys hear any satisfactory answers about inflation? That's a great point, Jess. I, I didn't think we heard a whole lot of new policy. In fact, uh, one of the challenges I think Republicans have is that if there's any instinct of a Republican candidate when it comes to economic policy, it's cut taxes. But there are a lot of other challenges that I don't, I don't think tax cutting is the only play in the playbook. And we didn't hear a whole lot of new solutions or ideas from the candidates on, on stage. I think we, th we heard an interesting divide over how Republicans should deal with the UAW strikers at the beginning of the debate. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to like dealing with the you know inflation, high gas prices, interest rates. Look, there there just wasn't a whole lot of policy, alternative policy being being advocated on that stage tonight. Well, so one thing that that you know we had talked about in the run up to this debate was obviously it's very easy for these seven candidates to be critical of Bidenomics, but what I was waiting to hear was sort of what is their omics, right? right. What is the the Nikki Haley omics? What is the Ron DeSantis omics? What what is that plan to bring down it. It's not as if inflation goes away because you have an election and somebody else is president, right? They're still <laughs> going to have to be, you know, somebody at the control of the levers. And so I do think that as this debate moves forward, as this campaign starts to winnow, you are going to hear uh, Joe Biden surrogates for the president kind of ask, what is your plan? And, and foreign policy is that still the starkest difference here? I mean, I think that's what I heard, right? These are candidates who all kind of, you know, agree on school choice, mm -hmm. pro-life to a certain extent, right? They might disagree on the, the number of weeks or if they can get a yeah. federal ban passed. But it, it sounded like foreign policy, again, what was the starkest difference on, on where and how we spend our money. Well, Jess, again, this is a deja vu from the first debate where yeah. there there is a big divide in the Republican Party over foreign policy. But really, Ramaswamy was the only candidate on that stage who sort of argued the isolationist position that, that we shouldn't be supporting Ukraine. Everyone else, DeSantis was sort of wishy-washy a little bit on, mm -hmm. on that question, but everyone else was sort of in from the traditional Reagan-esque position of, of uh, <laughs> peace through strength, uh, as that was brought up at, at the debate. So the other issue, though, I think that is going to be an emerging divide in the Republican Party, Jess, is over how, how, how aggressively to support the UAW laborers, the strikers, yeah. and uh, who sides with management, who's more sympathetic to management, who's more sympathetic with the strikers. Republicans, you know, a decade ago would have all sided with business. They would have sided with well, But Josh, with, isn't uh, there an easy, wasn't there an easy way out on that? I mean, Nikki Haley said, or I think it was she who said it, that it's, it's not about either side. It's about the Biden administration putting this at their feet by pushing electric cars, that this whole well, issue wouldn't even crop up without that. Yes, but you also have Republican senators like Josh Hawley actually, you know, going on the picket line and doing what uh, Joe Biden did himself. You have Donald Trump today speaking uh, at the same time as the debate in Detroit, trying to showcase his yeah. pro-labor bona fides. So, you know, it, 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 this is an issue that I've never heard Republicans rhetorically sound as pro-union as they have over the past couple right. of weeks, in, especially in the wake of a, of a disruptive strike that could really raise the price of, of domestic uh, auto, uh, you know, the, the domestic cars and really cause a, a wrinkle in the economy. And we talked about it from the aspect, uh, Jess, too, is like here we are at the Reagan Library, and obviously uh, President Reagan uh, had a very hawkish foreign policy, right? Peace through strength, yeah. um, got involved in, um, you know, these efforts in Central America, in Africa, parts around the world. Um, he also 
uh, was a president who fired uh, workers who went on strike, federal workers, uh, air traffic controllers who went on strike. And so it is a fascinating juxtaposition what we're seeing right now, this sort of internal debate within the Republican Party about sort of the Reagan wing of the party and, and that foreign policy aspect and that view on sort of the labor uh, unionized uh, labor workforce uh, and the more populist strain that, that is, um, you know, taking hold of at least parts of the Republican Party. I talked before the debate to Carl Rove about it, and he reminded me that when Ronald Reagan was running for president in 1979 and 1980, his views on those issues were sort of on the outside of where the Republican Party was at the time, that the Republican Party was more isolationist at that point, and that he was the one that kind of changed the direction of the Republican Party that uh, we sort of saw play out over the, the last few presidencies, and now we're kind of seeing Republicans take on that debate again. It, it was notable that uh, about an hour, hour and a half before the debate, uh, there was a vote in the House of Representatives over Ukraine aid funding. More Republicans than not voted in favor of sustaining Ukraine aid in the way that it's being done right now, but it got the largest number of Republican no votes, and we've seen up to this point. It was almost 50-50 among Republicans in the House of Representatives, Jess. Hmm. Wow, interesting. All right, we'll follow that. Finally, and this is a really brief one, gentlemen. Um, Next debate, three candidates, four candidates, five candidates. How many people are we going to see on stage? Jared, Jared, you go first. Your guess. I, I think we have five at least. I think that you're going to see candidates uh, do some uh, creative ways to raise their, their profile enough as it relates to maybe some of the polling and certainly we've seen sure. some creative strategies in getting those donations where they need to be. Yeah, I think Jared's on the mark. I, I, I'll go with six. I think Mike Pence, if, if he's on the bubble, he'll he'll qualify for the next debate. But I think Doug Burgum, mm -hmm. I mean, he was yeah. trying to, you know, he really, he really, I felt a little bad for the North Dakota governor trying to get get his <laughs> get get his lines in and uh, didn't feel like he was getting a whole lot of time. He's He was on the bubble already for this debate, and I don't think he's going to last much longer. Josh Grasshauer, Fox News Radio political analyst, and Jared Halpern, Fox News Radio's congressional reporter. Thank you both so much for joining me this, uh, this hour. Thank you, Jess. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up. A partial government shutdown starts Sunday if Congress can't approve a plan to fund the federal government. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise says someone has to take the reins on spending cuts. And House Republicans are doing it. And I really do think if we put the skins on the wall, if we pass the bills this week to do that, the Senate will follow and the White House will have to follow because the country's there. House Democrats stand ready to work to keep government open, to end the chaos, 
and to work on the most pressing matters that the American public care about. California House Democrat Pete Aguilar, federal agencies have been reviewing and updating their shutdown plans. Well, I'm very concerned about the fact that air traffic controllers would immediately stop getting paid. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. We're talking about people who thousands of them are, are in this department who go to work every day. They keep us safe. They have a stressful job in the best of times. And we're asking them to come to work with the added stress of not having a paycheck. We would also see a lot of critical work on consumer protection and railway safety stop. Uh, We're developing a lot of rules right now that we're using to hold airlines accountable and to improve railway safety, would not be able to continue progress on that. And particular concern, given that that we've finally uh, seen things like flight cancellations get back to normal or even below normal. This would stop us from hiring new air traffic controllers because we couldn't train them. This is the worst possible time to stop growing air traffic control because air traffic controls got a lot on its plate just to keep up with the record high air travel demand that we're experiencing right now. So those are just a few examples of why a Republican shutdown can and must be avoided. Yeah, there are people who don't work on the government who say, oh, big deal. So they work without pay for two, three, whatever weeks but they'll get it back. There was a 30-something day shutdown where a lot of air traffic controllers and airport workers said, you know, forget this. I'm not, if I'm not going to get paid, I'm not going to show up. And there were just a lot of sick calls that actually did affect air travel. Absolutely. That was a big part of what happened last time. And it, it shows how each passing day, the disruptions that are associated with the shutdown only get worse. But to be clear, there's a lot of work that grinds to a halt on day one of a shutdown, including the work we're doing, developing rules to require airlines to pay you a refund if you have an extended delay that's their fault, just to take one example. The other thing I'm concerned about alongside a shutdown is the consequence of the cuts that House Republicans are proposing. Remember, the whole idea of a shutdown is leverage for them to want to go back on the deal that Speaker McCarthy made with the president and get deeper cuts. We ran the numbers on the 8% cuts that they proposed. That means 11,000 fewer miles of railroad track getting safety inspections every year. It means that we would cut back in our ability to modernize FAA technology, like the system that we had a problem with just one day in January, 90 minutes, was enough to wreak havoc all day through throughout the aviation system. In fact, FAA would have to immediately freeze hiring on its entire operations and facilities workforce. So really, I'm watching two things. I'm watching the problems that would be associated if House Republicans take us toward a shutdown and the problems that would be associated with the cuts that they're pushing, whether we have a shutdown or not. This air traffic control shortage, to broaden this out a little past the shutdown, it's been building for years, right? What's led to it? Why can't the FAA find people and hire enough people? Is it the money? Is it the stress or what? Yeah, this is definitely a gap that has built up over many years, but we're finally seeing the numbers get better instead of worse. In other words, we've got to hire at a rate that is faster than the rate at which people are retiring or leaving the workforce. It is a stressful job. It's also a job that uh, requires a huge amount of training. Not only do you have to train in general to just know how to be an air traffic controller somewhere, you also have to do extensive training. It can be in the neighborhood of a year to learn the particular airspace you're going to work in because there's so much complexity to the job. And of course, the complexity of our airspace has only grown over the years because of the demand. Matter of fact, this year, we saw an all-time record high in terms of the number of passengers that TSA screened. Uh, So that's adding to the load. It's adding to the stress. That doesn't have to automatically be a problem if we have the staffing and the funding to keep up with it. We've put funding
funding the president's budget. The president has requested enough to do even more hiring next year so that we can really chip away at that gap. But again, a shutdown like this would stop us in our tracks. And even a shutdown lasting a few days or weeks would set us back by many months in terms of the, the, the hiring and the training because of the complexity and the sensitivity of that process. I don't know if this is a, a, a government problem or if it could be made into a government problem. Uh, there's also a growing pilot shortage. You've got mandatory retirements due to age and fewer pilots are coming out of the military. What's the answer there? I mean, is it more publicly funded or a private partnership for civilian training? Well, we do some work to encourage careers and education in aviation, but I think fundamentally the airlines need to have the right level of training and the right level of pay, as any private company and any private industry does, to make sure they have adequate staffing. I think where we come in largely is holding them accountable uh, so that they don't do things like sell tickets that they know they're never going to manage to serve because the schedule wasn't realistic. But again, our work to hold them accountable for that, which then flows through the system and uh, helps ensure they do the right thing. That work really grinds to a halt in a shutdown scenario. Are the airlines, in the short term, if there's a shutdown, and in the longer term, are they just going to have to reduce the number of planes in the air and raise prices to make up for it with all this traffic in conjunction to the problems they're having with their own infrastructure? What we've seen in, compared to a year ago is, is more realistic scheduling, which we think is positive. I think that's one of the reasons why cancellations are down a lot this year. We actually got them around 1.6% this year, and under 2% is what you would think of normal. I want them to go down even further. We know with weather, it's never going to be zero. Uh, but anything that the airlines can control, anything we can do something about on the FAA side, we want to push. Uh, so look, the, we put a lot of pressure on the airlines. I, I think they they deserve that pressure, but they also deserve credit for, for taking a lot of steps to try to grow the workforce, support more flights, pay competitively. But it certainly would not help them for us to suddenly shut down everything from the consumer protection functions to the training of air traffic controllers. So you talk to uh, airline leaders, they're constantly saying how they need and want the FAA to increase its air traffic control readiness and, and resources and, and staffing. Uh, and that's a big part of what's at stake here. Let me uh, get on the ground for a minute. Let me ask you a couple of things about electric vehicles. First, their role in the auto worker strike, if if there really is any. And criticism that the administration's goals might be too ambitious. The, the infrastructure is not there yet. The prices are still too high. In some cases, the, producing the electricity isn't exactly clean either. Are there pitfalls or, I don't know, unforeseen circumstances of the move to EVs that have to be addressed? No technology is perfect, but this technology is superior, so much so that industry is going there with or without us. I mean, let's be clear. The automotive industry around the world and here in the U.S. is moving in this direction because it makes business sense over the long run. And of course, it has a lot of benefits in terms of cleaner air, energy security for the United States. Uh, what's really at stake here is making sure that workers do well in this new chapter of the automotive industry. And I think the UAW leadership has been very clear about this. They're not demanding that we stay in old technologies. They're not trying to take us back to the stick shift days or the horse and buggy days. They understand that these technologies are coming and there's no going back. What they're demanding is that there be just as good of pay and benefits of building cars with the new technology as there were with the old technologies. And I think that's a very reasonable demand, especially when you see the profitability of the automakers in these recent years. Secretary, we have some really, really old infrastructure in parts of the country. How concerned are you now that you've looked under the hood to mix metaphors uh, about bridges and highway overpasses. And they, I mean, in New York City, for example, forget about the chaos locally. I mean, it would cost the economy billions and billions of dollars if, if, if a tunnel failed. 
Absolutely. And and that's one of the reasons why we pushed so hard to get the infrastructure package done. It's why it was the, one of the president's top priorities. And I think it's why we got a, a fair number of Republicans to cross over and work with us, uh, work with Democrats and the president to get this done. It's, it's not really a partisan issue. A, a bridge is a bridge and needs to be kept in good condition. You know, we have a lot of tunnels and bridges that are more than 100 years old that are carrying vital links and sometimes could be single points of failure along the Northeast Corridor, just to take one example, but also a lot of rural bridges where counties just haven't had the funds to do something about it with. Uh, this is not going to get fixed overnight. Uh, this problem built up over about 40 years, but we finally have the funds that each year it is going to be getting better instead of each year getting worse. You've been in this job going for going on, I guess, three years now, and you've learned some stuff. What's something that you found about the American transportation system? Because you're known to be, for lack of a better word, you know, nerdy about it. What's something that you've gone and told friends? Hey, did you know about this? This is really interesting. Well, there's a lot of things that our department does that I think most people don't know about from managing the St. Lawrence Seaway, which is a critical part of our supply chains that we jointly manage with Canada, to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point. And, you know, the Merchant Marine and, and our uh, seafaring capacity as a country is a very important part of our economic security. We're licensing commercial space launches, something that was obviously not part of the picture when the FAA was created, but now we have a whole branch of the FAA dealing with space. We're doing a lot of hazardous material work. And uh, and so there's something new every day. It's an incredibly dynamic space, especially with all the technologies that are developing, more and more automation in vehicles, uh, The uh, obviously the, the shift to electric vehicles, drones coming into the airspace, EVTOLs, those electric vertical uh, takeoff and landing craft that, that are going to be an increasingly important part of aviation, I think, for the balance of this decade. There are so many things that are just striking and have enormous potential, especially for safety. But we got to make sure that we handle these new technologies in the right way. Finally, circling back to the shutdown, you're obviously a big believer in the role of government in, in Americans' lives. What do you say to people who say, look, this is going to happen every other year, a shutdown. Who cares? Maybe we just don't need all this government and this proves it. Well, every time this happens, there are real consequences, and this would be no expe- uh, exception. You know, the ability to, for example, make passengers better off by developing the uh, the rule that's going to require airlines to give you a refund if they stick you with a long delay and it's their fault. I mean, that's something that people across the country, I think, understand we need to do. But passengers would be affected by the delay in us being able to get that done. Same thing with air traffic control. And and by the way, the idea that, that anyone thinks it's no big deal for service members to not get paid. I mean, I think about the people I served with, some of whom went through four, five, six tours in Afghanistan. But also when I think about the junior enlisted personnel that I served with, who often really are living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, they really count on those funds. Reservists who uh, uh, wouldn't come in or get paid uh, at all, uh, or even be able to to, to drill. That happened uh, when, when I was a reservist during a shutdown. That's really affecting real people's lives. And if you think that uh, that doesn't matter, uh, go tell a service member to their face because they deserve better. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you very much, uh, sir, for coming back on the Fox News Rundown. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Meet the American who created the Barbie doll. Before it became the highest grossing film of 2023, the iconic blonde bombshell was created as an inspiring role model for young girls. Ruth Handler co-founded the toy-making giant Mattel in 1945, and the female trailblazer story in a male-dominated global business transcends generations. Handler was born Ruth Mariana Moskowitz on November 4th, 1916 in Denver, Colorado, as the youngest of 10 children. She was raised by her older sister after their mother fell ill shortly 
shortly after her birth. In 1938, Ruth married Elliot Handler, who served in the U.S. Army during World War II and moved to Los Angeles. Elliot used his spare weekends away from the military to build toy furniture for his wife to sell. And by the mid-40s, the couple's toy business was making $2 million a year, nearly $34 million in today's standards. After Mattel launched in the mid-40s, business was booming. Handler and Mattel used the post-war economic boom to market toys directly to children and not their parents, a concept foreign to their competitors. On March 9, 1959, Handler debuted a daring new grown-up doll at the International Toy Fair in New York City. Barbie was named after Ruth and Elliot's teenage daughter, Barbara, and sported the now-iconic black-and-white swimsuit. Mattel sold 300,000 dolls in the first year, with a single Barbie doll costing $3, which would now be $32. After the success of the first doll, Ken, Barbie's sidekick, was launched in 1961. However, the company couldn't predict how wildly popular the doll would become. It was unlike the baby dolls young girls were used to playing with at the time. Handler wrote in her memoir, Dream Doll, the Ruth Handler story, that the Barbie doll allowed girls to project their dreams of their own futures as adult women. Since the doll's launch, Barbie had nearly 250 careers, ranging from U.S. president to cheerleader and everything in between. Ruth died on April 27, 2000 at 85 years old after suffering from colon cancer. She left a multimedia and multicultural phenomenon beloved by all across the globe. You can go to the lifestyle section at foxnews.com to find more of these incredible American stories. Perino, join me for my brand new podcast, Perino on Politics. As we analyze the 2024 election cycle, make sure you subscribe to this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts and leave me a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tommy Laren. What's on your mind? TikTok is the worst app ever downloaded for many reasons, including its origins with the Chinese Communist Party. But in addition to that, it's also melting the minds and apparently the morals of young users. There is a new viral trend on TikTok wherein users post and share tips on how to steal and shoplift and get away with it. Yet tutorials on how to break the law and steal from others using the hashtag borrow tips and tricks, which has 9 billion views and counting. Oh, and apparently store workers are also using this hashtag to give would-be thieves insider information. One target worker has a video with over 1.7 million views detailing the best tips and tricks for that particular store. This is where we are, folks, a society with no morals, no decency, and no respect for others, let alone the rule of law. It's Lord of the Flies out there. I'm Tommy Laren, and you can watch my show, Tommy Laren is Fearless, at Outkick.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.